0: Welcome to The Secret Life of Dietitians. I'm Laura Poland.
1: And I'm Amy Keller. Health professionals like like dietitians and physicians are called on now more than ever to give their opinion uh, when they see stories and again I have many people that will stop me you know on a daily basis or ask right. me a question on media on social media like what do you think of this story what do you think of this mm-hmm. and I think we're being asked to synthesize a lot of information so we thought we kind of take a, ba- a step back of what we look at in this podcast and then allow you guys to understand what maybe you want to look for when you see these stories because some of these headlines are just out of left field aren't they they're really they sure crazy are. and sound quite shocking
0: exactly and because that, that's what sells right you know so they need to an organization that's trying to get you to listen is
1: trying to do they have to grab your attention absolutely so on this episode of the secret life of dietitians let's Unpack a little <laughs> bit about nutrition research. And like I said, you know, I think there's so much out there. I think it's hard for consumers. We all kind of get lost in it. I know I get lost in it, and I feel for consumers because I think it is really easy to get lost in it.
0: Absolutely.
1: We thought we'd kind of take a step back this week. Yeah. We're all just besieged, seems like on a daily basis, for me maybe an hourly basis, (laughs) (laughs) uh, if I spend too much time on Twitter, with health information from such a variety of sources, whether that's the internet or social media, blogs, maybe sort of well-meaning friends and family. And information can really be sort of taken out of context Mm -hmm. and also just sort of piecemeal. It's not necessarily put into something that's cohesive for us to understand maybe the whole story.
0: Right. Just 10 second bites sometimes.
1: Absolutely. Or 140 characters. They want to grab your attention. Right. Or 140 characters (laughs) on Twitter. What can we say in 140 characters? Right. Um, And I think, you know, maybe you've experienced this with your clients. I know I have that we're all in probably overload. Of nutrition information. I know that I think I said this in a previous podcast that maybe sometimes too much information isn't a good thing. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how to evaluate some of those nutrition stories this week. And I think because we have sort of introduced a nutrition story every podcast, we Mm -hmm. thought it might be good to kind of take that step back and say, what are we really looking at?
0: Right. So yeah, taking a step back and just thinking about some of the questions that we think you might want to be able to ask when you see things in the news and so you can be a better consumer. In my background, I used to work in long-term care and I would work with a lot of people who you know, are an older generation. And one of the frustrations was that at that point, they had a very limited intake of what they would eat because they'd heard so many things over the years. You know what really? I mean? So, yeah, so that always bothered me, and I, I always was very concerned about that because if you think about it, as we age, you know, one one tidbit you hear here and there, oh, don't eat after six. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, don't eat eggs, don't eat this, don't mm-hmm. eat that, and think about when you're 90 years old, you're afraid to eat anything, and I always felt so bad for them. Mm-hmm. So... I wanted to just take a step back today and talk about what I feel like people need to ask when they're faced with headlines in the news. So asking what type of study it is, Mm -hmm. what were the characteristics of the subjects in the study, what was the weight of the scientific evidence, and who sponsored or funded the research, and then where was the study published? So, today we're going to take a look at all of these areas and kind of break
1: that down. So, let's talk about that first question that you asked. What type of study was it? Because there are really good studies and maybe not so good studies. We're going to go through, you know, uh, the kind of the, the weight of evidence from kind of the weakest weight of evidence to the strongest in, in a little bit but let's talk about the different kinds of experiments.
0: Okay, yeah, so some different research definitions. Let's just start with a blind experiment. You might hear that an experiment is considered a blind experiment. And this is a study in which the subjects, they don't know what treatment they are receiving in this study. It's important because this can help you avoid that placebo effect that can happen in studies where maybe they think okay, I'm getting treatment, so I'm going to get better, or I'm going to do this, or because I'm getting the treatment. But if it's a blind study, they don't know whether they're in that placebo group or the re- the control group. But even better is a double-blind experiment, an experiment where neither subjects or the researchers actually even know, because there's bias when the researchers come in there and they know, you're getting a placebo effect. Does that have an effect? And so they've Mm -hmm. gone to double blind experiment helps avoid that introduction of potential bias from the people who are running the experiment.
1: And then those groups that are studied. So we hope that every study that you read has a control group. Right. (laughs) Because (laughs) without one, it's very difficult to tell whether An intervention makes a difference or the lack of an intervention makes a difference. So Mm -hmm. that control group, that group that gets the same treatment as the experimental group, except for that variable that's being tested. So if we think about, for example, a study on artificial sweeteners, so the control group gets one type of, of study, mm-hmm. and then the experimental group gets the same study, except the intervention of maybe an artificial sweetener being added to the diet. So if you have an experimental group and you have a control group, that can actually really be helpful when you're reading a study, because you can say, okay, one group got one thing and another group got another thing. Sometimes you'll even see those groups switched right, during the study. the study, exactly. which
0: makes it even more powerful.
1: Exactly. Right? So when you look at the weight of evidence, you might say, oh, were the groups ever switched? Mm -hmm. because then you can control for other factors that might affect an outcome. Because everybody's different. Absolutely. (laughs) And it's good that you mentioned placebo. Um, And I think that's important because, again, sometimes people, when they believe they're getting an intervention, can behave as if they're getting an intervention, Mm -hmm. even if they're not getting anything. Right. Right. So that placebo effect, and if you think about that placebo, and you maybe have heard that term before, that sort of sugar pill, right. if they're testing a drug, right. you know. If you th- know
0: you're being tested to lower your blood sugar or control headaches, then all of a sudden you feel like, oh, I'm not having as many headaches. Exactly. So this is working.
1: There was a study done several years ago on um, diet soda and migraines. Mm-hmm. And the thing that was super interesting about those results is that they found that the people that were getting the placebo were more likely to get a migraine than the people who were actually getting the artificial sweetener.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah, so it's really, really interesting (laughs) that the placebo, just the inducement of the idea that they might be getting that intervention Mm -hmm. was enough to give them a headache. Yeah. Very, very interesting work. Yeah.
0: And then we have peer-reviewed manuscripts. So this is a research paper that is completed. Mm-hmm. So once it's completed, though, it's not published until it's been reviewed by people of their peers. Right. So they've taken a look at the study, and often they may even go back and redo parts of the study and make it better and make it stronger. Mm-hmm. So peer-reviewed uh, research is something that I always give a lot more credibility Mm -hmm. to.
1: You'll often see Mm peer-reviewed research in scientific journals, but not always. The one thing to remember is there are some scientific journals out there that are not necessarily subject to the same stringent review that you might find in others. So if you think about, we'll talk about evaluating nutrition sources in a bit, but things that are published in the journal of the American Medical Association -hmm. Association, or the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics are going to be reliable sources of research uh, rather than... Uh, maybe an organization or a journal that you've never heard of Mm -hmm. Um, and again there are some journals out there that sound really legitimate right right that can sometimes even be a little bit on the tricky side Right. Um I've been through peer review with a couple of articles uh-huh. and it is no fun <laughs> because it is it is one of those things that you get these comments back and it can be an extremely stressful experience. Yeah. Um because you're right, because they're sort of kind of zeroing on your work and right. telling you it's like going through, you know, with the red pen of what you've done mm-hmm. wrong or what you could do better. Right. And it's it's a very stressful experience, but it's so important yeah. to the work that somebody else look at this and say This is where this is weak. This is where that you could have improved. And And this is really
0: strong. Right.
1: Or this shouldn't be published until this issue is fixed. Right. Right. And I think that's super, super important.
0: Yep. So let's talk a little bit about research design.
1: So we're going to start with kind of the weakest and we're going to hopefully move ourselves right up to the strongest. So let's start with that case study. And I always make my interns do a case study. So they pick one particular patient and they, Mm -hmm. you know, research everything about that patient and they present it to the other dietitians. Similar to that in research uh, with case studies, because it's on one person or one group of individuals in a clinical setting. And it's really interesting for formulating a research question, but it's not necessarily helpful because you can't generalize it to the rest of the population. Right. So if you're looking at one person or maybe a small group of people, again, very interesting right. and maybe worth f- f- further study, but not necessarily something where you can say, well, the rest of the people in the United States should follow this because this affected one person in this way.
0: Yeah, and I've always felt like, I've never been in a position where I felt that I was in a job that I could do research, but I do work with patients and individuals, and I'm sometimes fascinated when something that, one thing that we talk about with one patient I end up talking about with multiple patients Mm And when I see effects happening in multiple people, it's like, hmm, I really wish they do studies on this. And that's where I wish, you know, maybe I know I need to jump in more, maybe do some studies, but take that to the next. That's a good starting point.
1: Absolutely. And so then we go from case studies to case control studies. So we have untreated subjects, you know, matched and variable. So, you know, like age or weight, maybe ethnic background or activity level, and then they compare them simultaneously with those intervention subjects. So these are the people that are getting the treatment in the particular study to evaluate the effect Mm -hmm. of the Mm -hmm. treatment. And again, this is kind of one weight up. Right. Um, but it, again, doesn't necessarily establish cause and effect. All it does is match up those groups. So again, you maybe don't have then the other factors of, oh, one group of people was much older than the other group of people. And again, you're not necessarily, you know, kind of comparing apples to apples. You want to be able to do that in studies.
0: Okay. And next we've got cross-sectional studies. Now these are which studies that kind of are looking at the outcomes that are observed kind of within a population simultaneously and it's only at one point in time usually it's ways to identify possible disease and stimulate further research again like the case mm-hmm. studies but it's just kind of looking at okay we've it's kind of like that we might be seeing a relationship here mm-hmm. so there's a cause and we're looking at hey that Correlates to this, mm-hmm. and so right.
1: You because- can't necessarily establish cause and effect with those right, cor- those exactly. cross-sectional studies. Again, it's a great place for jumping off and saying, "Okay, we might need mm-hmm. to study this in a much more controlled environment Correct. to make sure there's nothing else that could be causing right this particular thing." And you know, if uh, I've seen different correlational and cross-sectional studies, where again you might see something that looks like it shouldn't be related and maybe again it could be a case where something else is affecting it. Mm-hmm. And so again, super helpful in formulating future research questions, but and this is a and this is a problem because many studies that you see that are published in the media are from these association type right. of studies. They're not helpful in terms of looking at cause and effect. Right. But they get published the kind of like their gospel right. truth,
0: exactly. So yeah. we also have another level to that where it's epidemiological study. So this is um, studies of population, for example, in nutrition, looking at dietary habits and disease inst- incidents, and they're, but they're observational again in nature, and they don't cause, don't really prove any cause and effect, like you said. It's just that first step. I think one of my biggest case controlled cross or I'm sorry cross sectional epidemiological study examples is that I always bring up is heart disease and dietary cholesterol right mm-hmm. that one they've never proven that a high cholesterol diet is causing heart disease right. they've never figured out what it is but we see this relationship mm-hmm. right in a population with it Right. Is there
1: something else, though, in that population that could be leading to heart disease Mm -hmm. um, that is not necessarily controlled for in that study? Laboratory studies are very tightly controlled. So this is kind of the opposite of Mm -hmm. a cross-sectional or epidemiological study. So things are really tightly controlled to the point where they might be too tightly controlled. They're not necessarily (laughs) realistic to... People. Right, <laughs> right exactly so for example you'll see a lot of research that's done on animals and i see lots and lots of nutrition studies that are published in the media and when you actually read the story or maybe you even go back and read the study oh this study was done on rats <laughs> this study was done on mice and not really that helpful mm-hmm. um in fact A lot of interventions that we study that are effective in animals don't necessarily translate to humans in vitro studies. So these are things that are done in a test tube are even maybe less particularly helpful to generalizing to human beings because there's so much else going on in our body that could affect an intervention that Mm -hmm. you can't really replicate in a lab. Um, But again, it's a good jumping off point. It's a good
0: place to start. It gives us
1: ideas. Exactly. Then we get into this kind of the strongest research, these randomized clinical trials. These are considered sort of the gold standard of research Mm -hmm. um, as they are implemented sort of to kind of figure out what exactly is that cause and effect relationship. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of the last step sometimes in confirming that effect of a treatment after other studies have shown the association or the correlation Mm -hmm. but this is kind of the last step where we might say okay now we think we know what might be going on but let's go ahead and confirm that in a randomized control trial so there again there's one group getting in you know nothing and then there's that second group getting the intervention Hopefully, nobody knows whether they're getting the intervention. Hopefully, the the researchers don't even know. Double blind. Double blinding is (laughs) super, super important. And it's the strongest evidence uh, that we can put together. And then coming up with that, hopefully, cause and effect relationship that's really, really strongly established.
0: And finally, we have meta analysis. And this is really not a study per se, but it just is looking at the scientific literature that's out there and Mm -hmm. summarizing and taking all of the valid studies that were done and saying that were regarding a specific topic and saying how strong is this evidence. Mm -hmm. And uh, meta-analysis is the ultimate way that we can really determine what we want to be pursuing in terms of what's the truth that's out there.
1: Right. What's the kind of the weight of the evidence? Because if you think about that meta-analysis, you could be working with several studies. You could be looking at, you know, maybe, you know, 50 different studies on a particular topic. Mm -hmm. And some of them involve people who are very young or very old or people who are, you know, maybe of different ethnic backgrounds, but we kind of synthesize them all together Mm -hmm. and kind of draw conclusions of you know, here's what we think when we look at all of these studies sort of put together. And again, this can really be the kind of the strongest research that we have. Like you said, though, it's not really a study. It's sort of somebody who sits down and synthesizes a whole bunch of studies right. put together. And I can really help answer some of these big research questions that we see.
0: Right. Now, the dietary guidelines yes. and the, the recommendations for healthy populations. I went to a talk last year, and one of the researchers who was involved in releasing the dietary, the most recent dietary guidelines, they come out every five years. Yes. And it was fascinating, because I didn't realize the process that they go to, through, but they look at all of these studies, mm-hmm. you know, better weight to meta-analysis and things like that, and that's how they've come up with the recommendations which aren't very exciting, but it's to eat a balanced, healthy diet, right? right. A half your plate, fruits and vegetables, a quarter protein, quarter grainish, right. and some dairy, right? right?
1: I think there's a sort of a conspiracy <laughs> theory, maybe with the dietary guideline, that somehow these are... You know bought and paid for yeah. by industry, and right, and really, like you said, they're not always that exciting. These recommendations, you might say, Well, it's really obvious that I'm supposed to eat a balanced diet. Right, well, right, that's what the research studies show that mm-hmm. that is the most effective thing that we can do. There's nothing necessary that's going to knock your socks off when yeah. you read the dietary guidelines, mm-hmm. but that's because you have to look at all of the research put together, and I, re- I can't even really imagine serving on the dietary guidelines because it, <laughs> oh, I know. the amount of stuff the, you would have to read and put together, exactly. it's just insane. It's just he, insane.
0: He, yeah, it was amazing to yep. hear what they had gone through and how they dwindled, dwindled it down to look at the things that we were just discussing and, and to give more weight to those studies that were more credible and more um,
1: scientific. So So let's move on to kind of evaluating the sources of the information, and um, you're going to describe a little bit about how we can evaluate that, but I think the one thing to remember is that maybe not all sources are created equal. Correct,
0: correct. So yeah, let's talk about evaluating the resources of the information you're getting one of the things we want to know is who sponsored or who funded the research mm-hmm. and most scientific journals i know the academy you have to disclose you have disclosures at the beginning of every research too that mm-hmm. says i have this association with this company or something mm-hmm. like that so you want to look for those and if they're disclosed that's a good thing but some people unfairly discount that research if you know a company has a funded interest and that's fine but I think it goes back to looking at the things we just went through what Mm -hmm. kind of research was it because if it was a strong you know randomized clinical trial there was a good amount of test subjects and then it's something that maybe we shouldn't it's okay to to go along with that research you know Mm -hmm. and I think some people just discount it. I think, right? well, I
1: think industry funded research deserves the same critical eye that any other research does. And again, I, I, like you said, true. just because it's funded by somebody doesn't necessarily make it, like I said, bought and paid for. Right. Um, yeah. Although it can feel like that. It can it feel can. like we can't trust. I always, I, feel I always get for, more
0: skeptical when I do read that.
1: Right. But if this was funded by the, you know, American Beverage Association yes. or something that is talking about a particular drink mm-hmm. that you might think, oh, gosh, you know, maybe they have a vested interest in this being, the, the results being the way they are. Right. And so then you have to go back and look at the study and say, did they, like you said, did they have a good, strong study design? Yes or no. Right. And maybe they drew conclusions that were in their best interest or you know maybe they were very very rigorous mm-hmm. uh, and again they are subject to the same peer review that the rest of us are right which is good news um, right. that they still have to go through that same process that we do
0: right yeah so so that's something to keep in mind too and then what about you know studies that you're finding on the internet or articles in popular press so this is where we get into trying to separate fact and fiction and I think this is something that we all, there are some 10 red flags. The, the Food and Nutrition Science Alliance is a partnership of nationally recognized incredible health organizations, and they have kind of come up with these 10 red flags, things that you can do to help determine if it's junk science or if it's something more credible. Number one is, does something recommend a or promise a quick fix, right? Absolutely. Um, So if something's saying that you can... Tomorrow, wake up healthy or whatever. <laughs> That's something to be concerned about. Claims that, again, sound too good to be true, right? right. My favorite one of this is uh, you see a lot that you can lose a pound a day. You mm-hmm. can lose 35 pounds by the end of the month on this diet, right, mm-hmm. or something like that. If it sounds like claims that are sound too good to be true probably are. Simple conclusions that are drawn from a very complex study.
1: Right. So you might see that and um, you, you think about like a, a large research study on a particular topic and they come up with one very simple, simple. single conclusion. Well, that is usually not the case because there might be other variables that could have affected right. the outcome. So if it looks, again, very simple or like a very clean answer, I will say most research is not that cut and dry. Right. Right. There are going to be many things, and you'll you'll see that in news stories. You'll even see that you know further study is warranted, or these were the limitations in the study that may not be discussed in a news story.
0: Right, that's not going to make it to the media because, like I said, they have to get in, get out. They want to catch your attention, absolutely, get, get the story out, and they don't go into those types of things. Recommendations being made based on a single study right? Instead of the body of evidence that's out there, especially if it's going against everything else that's out there.
1: So I kind of describe this to patients as like a a balance scale. So you Mm -hmm. remember those old balance scales from like high school (laughs) chemistry, where you have one thing on one side and Mm -hmm. one thing on the other. And when we talk about a single study. It's one of the reasons that sometimes you see these shocking headlines, but then you go to your dietitian or you go to your doctor and they're continuing to recommend what they always did. Right. And you say, Well, why didn't you change? I saw this study and why right. haven't you changed what you're doing? Because mm-hmm. I just saw this thing on TV that I'm right. supposed to tell you about. Um, that you think about if it's, you know, 40 studies on one side of the balance scale mm-hmm. and Two studies on the other side of the balance scale right. that you might find that you that scale doesn't really change very much right that right. the evidence is not heavy enough on the other side to change that scale right. and so again you might end up though with one study that sort of discounts all of the other, other 40 other? studies yeah. but that's com- certainly the exception that is not right. the rule right so what we say, you know, is, again, it might just be one single study does not right. typically change practice. No. And so yeah. you might see something that might alarm you. Yeah. But when I talk about it, I'm not quite as alarmed because, yeah. well, that's nice, but that might be a study that, devel- you know, maybe deserves further work. Mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily something that I'm going to change my practice because of one particular right. study. So if you see that single study kind of aha moment, right. realize yeah. that most nutrition or health or health professionals are probably not changing their practice right, right. until they get more think, evidence on the other side of the scale.
0: Right. I think about myself in, in science class, you know, and I'm the one person that turned out something that was green and everybody else's is blue exactly <laughs> oh that's
1: a great way to think about it yeah
0: and I was like okay I you know I just messed up one ingredient or I did something maybe you know or I don't know maybe I'm just unique that way right right <laughs> it doesn't change the you know outcome that we should be expecting dramatic statements that are refuted by reputable scientific organizations so if we can get to that point where
1: right. <laughs> Well if we think about again what is considered reputable? And yeah. again, there are a lot of organizations out there that sound really legitimate, but maybe are not. Yeah. So if we think about maybe some credible nutrition resources, so the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics mm-hmm. is a good place to start. We'll put this in maybe on our websites and maybe yep. a kind of a list of you know good organizations you might want to look at. You know, you might want to look at something coming from the American Medical Association or the American Heart Association, as considered legitimate good nutrition resources. And again, you might find. That those dramatic conclusions and you know statements sound really shocking, but mm-hmm. the American Heart Association might respond in a, a different way. Yeah. And you might think, oh goodness, I wonder why they're responding in a different way. Well, it could be right. again that they're looking at the whole weight of the evidence. Right. They have scientific advisors, these are people. These people are, you know, this is their job right. is to be able to look at the weight of that evidence and they might come up with a different conclusion. Correct.
0: Let's see here. Dire warnings, danger from a single product.
1: Right. So if you hear about, you know, goodness gracious, if you eat, you know, um, conventionally grown fruits and vegetables, you're going to get cancer. Right, right. And I think you mentioned this week this new study from the Environmental Working Group that sounded quite alarming Yes, um, about the Dirty Dozen. The Uh, Dirty Dozen. And it sort of comes back every year. Every year they
0: come out with their Dirty Dozen, and it's the Environmental Working Group. And I was in my car on my way to work this one morning last week, and they reported on this in their news segment in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, this group has an agenda, And their information on their website, the people just don't have the scientific background. And when we look at organic versus Mm -hmm. not organic, the evidence-based research is not showing us that there's a concern there. And these people are talking about the dirty dozen every year when it's insignificant, the amount of... you know pesticide residue is what they're talking about. And
1: if you are interested in how many <laughs> pesticide residues are in your food, my favorite website perhaps of all time is safefruitsandveggies.com. We'll put this again in our on our website where you can actually put in, you know, whether you're a man, woman, child, teenager, you can also put in like the number of apples you would have to eat to get to an unsafe level. And I believe for example for a woman I would have to eat 850 apples every day for my entire adult life. Right. Every single day, 850 apples for my entire adult life to get to what would be considered an unsafe pesticide residue level.
0: point at which you might have health concerns. Right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's the nature of a list. Everything goes from most to least. Right, right. You know, so something, again, sounds like it might be highest on that dirty dozen list. Right. But that because that's because it's a list, right? And that's how lists work.
0: And I think kale was called out specifically this year. But sheriff. I thought kale
1: was the best thing ever, right?
0: <laughs> so now they're just harping on kale. Right. Um, but if you use that website, a woman could eat eight, 18,615 servings of kale in a day. A child seven thousand seven hundred forty six in a day, and still not have health effects from the residues that are on that kale, right? So why are we having, oh, I just the eye roll on my way to work when they were reporting on the dirty dozen?
1: Well, and I think there are unintended effects sometimes to those types of warnings because they actually tend to research shows Target low-income consumers the most, mm-hmm. so the people who are afraid to buy strawberries because they're maybe right. higher on the dirty dozen list, and so they say, "Well, if I can't buy organic, I'm just not going to buy any strawberries." Right. And that's really unfortunate. It is. it is. That is really unfortunate that, and people don't because are all, right. It's it's they're all safe. They're all safe they're no matter how safe. they're grown.
0: And and more and more studies tell us that the more fruits and vegetables we include in our diet, the more we have a decreased risk of cancers. Right. So study after study is showing good evidence for that. Right. So, and then, you know, this also gets back to, again, if they have a list of good and bad foods, that should always be a red flag. Absolutely. Um, And then if they're Kind of trying to sell a product or manufacture something themselves. Right. That's always a red flag.
1: This is a big thing in the dietary supplement world. Yes. When I worked with patients and I say, well, it's great you're reading that website, scroll to the bottom. And see if they're trying to sell you a product mm-hmm. that you, you must have, mm-hmm. that you, you want to make sure that there's not a vested interest on their part to sell you a particular, you know, perhaps a vitamin or a mineral supplement or yep. a particular herbal supplement, that if it's for sale on their website, it might be a red flag that that's not good science.
0: Yep. So we'll put that list on our website as well for you all.
1: So let's kind of and then kind of branch out into the media and nutrition research. Do they mix? You know, I think we're all getting our media and our our information from so many different sources now. You were mentioning your millennial, you yeah. know, dietitians and, and even your kids not really turning on the TV. Nope.
0: But and if you look at sources of media is always tv's the highest
1: but i right. think that's going to change it is absolutely so going to change in my yes. opinion because again you know you can get away without watching ads even now on tv mm-hmm. and you you know you can pass through those things the other thing to remember is that research is often published it's the results of a single study and the problem is, you know, there's kind of that spin on that study. And we hear that term spin mm-hmm. all the time. Well, how was that study? Sometimes we hear it more in politics maybe than we hear it in you know, nutrition yeah. or in <laughs> medical research. But it happens oh, yeah. in, in, in these areas as well. Mm-hmm. So you, where could that spin happen? Did the spin happen at the research level? Did perhaps the people who wrote the wrote the study make conclusions that they maybe shouldn't have, or maybe Mm -hmm. they reached a little bit to get some conclusions. That's a possibility. Then they, of course, write a press release that then gets released to the media. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing to remember is that journalists are not necessarily trained medical experts. Occasionally, you'll get a medical expert journalist. This is their job. That's what they're trained in. But I think that's probably the exception and not necessarily the rule. The other thing is that they're sort of charged with coming up with this sort of attention-grabbing, clickbait headline. Right. right. And if they don't have that, nobody's going to read the story. Right. So you might see a research study published with this sort of crazy, sensationalized headline that goes, it certainly makes you want to read right. the story. Yeah. But when you actually get into the study, you might say, Oh, well, that study was done on animals. Oh, I remember now I'm not supposed to necessarily generalize those to humans or that was an in vitro study. So done in a test tube. Maybe not the best place for me to be able to generalize that to my family. Right. Um, And then the other thing about it is we people who kind of self-styled experts. And, you know, we have famous doctors out there who like to think of themselves as nutrition experts. And, again, all you have to do is Google something and, you know, all the resources that come up, whether they're, again, nobody polices the Internet. And, uh, again, I think those self-styled experts can make something sound much more credible Mm -hmm. than it necessarily is.
0: And, unfortunately, sometimes they even get to the point where they are – than promoting a product or a supplement, and they're gaining benefits from it themselves right. to do that.
1: And, the, you know, if you think about it, and we talked about that balance scale, again, mm-hmm. you put out a sensationalized headline that may or may not be appropriate to, you know, uh, kind of that placing that study in that kind of that context of previous studies is what we want mm-hmm. them to do. Right. And that doesn't necessarily happen. Now if you actually go back to the research study, they will right. often place it in the context of previous work. They will say, uh-huh. well, comparing it to this particular study that was done. I see that all the time. Right. And I know you have too. Yeah. Comparing to this particular study or this is what they found and here's what we found. Right. And so you have to kind of they they will tend to put that in the article, but it doesn't mm-hmm. make the media story. No. And then of course we also even look at kind of being the first man out the door with Mm -hmm. our study. You know, I got to be the first person to put up this Mm -hmm. research, to put up this sort of shocking headline. And again, whether that's necessarily accurate is not necessarily the case. Again, so many studies I see now are based on association that got published. But the headline or even the accompanying article would not make you think, it was just an association. Yeah, It would not make you think that at all. Sometimes you'll see it at the bottom of the, the story. It says, oh, the researchers say more work needs to be done. Right. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> it really right. does. That's great. <laughs> but, you know, that sometimes almost feels like a disclaimer. Right. And not necessarily something that should be in the forefront mm-hmm. of the article. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you look at statements like may cause or, you know, Yeah, that really may cause, cause. but it also may have nothing to do with it. Right. So look for those words, you know, may is my favorite one because I see it in a lot of studies.
0: Yeah. I think at that point too, just hopefully you can be a little more skeptical about what you're seeing in the media Mm -hmm. and just take some time to understand that they're just trying to sell something and things like that.
1: I think, you know, we could do an entire episode on social media yeah and and nutrition again many of us are getting information from multiple media platforms like you had said before that you know because we're all getting it from different information or different different areas we can feel like there might be strong uh, groups of people that have a louder voice. Mm-hmm. And I think you had mentioned before we got started today about sometimes we think about that maybe kind of you know, that strange neighbor yes. that we had. Yes. So it's such a great example.
0: Yeah. So when you're, if you think about it in the past, you in your neighborhood, you always had that kind of strange neighbor, you know, that neighbor that you were like not so sure about. Everybody kind of was like not, sh- you know, they seemed off the wall, mm-hmm. right? And now these days with social media, it seems that everyone can kind of gravitate. We do. We all tend to gravitate to the people that we want to be
1: listening to. Right. And we
0: want to be paying attention to. We tend to
1: read what we agree with.
0: Correct. Not
1: just like in politics, but in everything.
0: Right. And I think that's what's been bothering me the most is I kind of feel like some of these off the wall mm-hmm. weird neighbors of ours are a pretty loud voice to me. Mm-hmm. And I think I see that because I feel it from my patients who come in so confused Mm -hmm. and so unsure of what to make of whatever.
1: Never read the comments. That's always my my feeling. You know, I was reading a blog the other day about a particular nutrition topic, and then I started to read the comments, and I thought, oh, my goodness, we've gone down a rabbit hole here. And some of the things that were said, if I was – less educated about this particular topic Mm -hmm. it would have scared the crap out of me (laughs) it really would have some of the stuff that was said Mm -hmm. and i thought my goodness you know if you have somebody who's maybe less savvy Mm -hmm. they could scare themselves out of eating anything they could be that 90 year old patient in the nursing home who refuses to eat anything Anything. because they've heard it's all all bad right
0: and this is where i get a little uh Confused as a health professional, or or not confused, but just not sure what to do. There's the saying of the nail that sticks up gets hammered down, right? Yep. And so if you feel like when I see things like that on social media that are not true, and I know the evidence isn't there to support what's going on, how much do I stand up? Because yes, I'm going to get all those comments, and I'm going to get hammered down. And right. I feel like I'm not that type of person to stand. I'm really good talking to my one-on-one patients about right. it and and giving them the advice and hopefully they can trust me and they understand my background. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, just on social media, you're just going to get comments right. from everyone. And um, I, I can't sometimes take that. <laughs> and I sometimes don't want to say anything when I really probably should
1: right well, that's one thing I, when I work with young dietitians I say you know when they if you disagree with somebody it's okay to say you don't you want to say I disagree or you're wrong or, right I think it's say tell me more about why you believe that right tell and me I mean
0: conversation that's what I would like to do right yeah. tell
1: me more about why you believe that mm-hmm. um say maybe if you have to debunk a few myths I think mm-hmm. that's okay yeah but, I mean, this happens a lot in my area of expertise, which is celiac disease and the gluten-free diet. There mm-hmm. are so many myths surrounding mm-hmm. it that it's, you know, yeah, tell me more about why you believe that wheat is different than it was 50 yes. years ago. Yeah. Tell me more about it, cause, because because mm-hmm. you might have read that someplace online, mm-hmm. so then I'll kind of present what I have mm-hmm. read. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've also decided that it's very difficult to change people's minds mm-hmm. once they've made up their mind about a particular topic. Right. And vice versa. It's sometimes very difficult to change my mind. Correct. Correct. Um, I know. When I feel like I've done enough, enough research. And again, we tend to sort of go into that echo chamber. We talk about, do we talk to people who agree with us? Yeah. Um, Right. But that's, that's something that's very difficult for the, for the lay person, but it's also Mm -hmm. difficult for health professionals. Although I like to think that if I'm presented with strong evidence, Mm -hmm. I can change my mind as well.
0: Exactly. Me too. Absolutely.
1: I, I feel the same way.
0: Uh, any other final thoughts, Amy?
1: I think kind of practical applications for, your, you know, for the public. So we think about, again, where did that study come from? Yep. Who's writing about it? When you sit down and you read a really sensational headline, just take a pause Mm-hmm. Before you kind of sort of you know, throw the newspaper into the air and think, right, oh my no, goodness, like no. I, you know, oh no, <laughs> can't we now anymore. exactly the egg study. Okay, <laughs> eggs are bad for us again. Well, let's look at that again that, on that balance scale and that right. weight of that evidence. And then again, yeah. you know, if you need help, kind of deciphering yes. nutrition information. Perhaps the internet is not your best resource, but again, connecting up with your healthcare professional, whether that's your physician or your other medical provider, or maybe your registered dietitian to mm-hmm. kind of sift through and say, this is what I heard, yeah. you know, or, you know, send us an email. saying, this is, this is what I heard right. about this particular topic. What do you think? Right. And then again, if you can approach it with an open mind, I think that's really, really helpful. And then I think finally, not focusing on anything that's isolated in terms of it's like a, a superfood or a, you know, I think the thing to remember is just like those test tubes where mm-hmm. studies are done, they can't replicate what the body does. Yeah. So while blueberries may be a really healthy food, uh-huh. we, see that's, we see lots of stories about blueberries. Yeah. I saw one the other day about blueberries and Alzheimer's disease, I believe. Mm-hmm. You know, super interesting, right. but there may be many other things in a diet for mm-hmm. somebody who regularly eats blueberries. that may be causing those effects that Mm -hmm. maybe have nothing to do with the blueberries. Right.
0: Or exponentially improve
1: the effect of the blueberries. Who knows? Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Not the
0: sum of just one thing. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you for listening to The Secret Life of Dietitians. You can find us on the internet at secretliferd.com.
1: You can share your show ideas with us there. If you have a particular topic you'd like us to cover, if you have any questions or comments about maybe today's episode, or if you have a particular question about a nutrition topic that you would like us to address, we'll be happy to do it there. And we'll catch you next time wherever you get your favorite podcast.